You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. So it is uh, the Advent season. This is technically the first Sunday in Advent. Um, Being Baptist, I grew up Southern Baptist, um, Advent was not a thing. It wasn't part of my church's... um, you know, world at all. There was no Advent wreath. There was no, like, I assumed Advent meant Catholic. In an old school Baptist, Catholic means bad. Okay, that's just the way it was. I'm not making a judgment call here. That's just the way it was communicated to me as a child. Um, and so Advent equals bad. Same thing for Lent, by the way, all those Catholic holidays. Um, as I grew older, uh, I began to appreciate those. I began to appreciate um, some of the idea of preparing our hearts for seasons, whether uh, preparing for the arrival of Christ or lamenting the, the death of Christ in, in, the, in the coming uh, Easter season. Uh, and I find something useful about those seasons. So I pray over the next four or so weeks that you prepare your hearts um, for the arrival of Christ because he is indeed coming. Um, he will indeed come, uh, and we need to be found ready for that. Typically, this would be the Sunday where I would begin speaking about Advent things. I would begin talking about the arrival of Christ, but I am two weeks away from finishing Esther, and I'm not waiting until 2021 to finish this thing. We're going to get this done. Um, And so this week and next week, we're going to pound through the book of Esther as we've been walking through the book of Esther, Um, and then we'll have a couple Sundays where you'll get uh, Advent slash Christmas. Okay, that's my, my, my promise to you. There will be something Christmassy. I was, I did uh, Thanksgiving with my brother, like I said, this uh, weekend, or this past week, I guess, this weekend is now, um, and uh, a few Christmases ago, they went to a, uh, like, an old school Church of Christ for Christmas in Albuquerque. It was where her uh, parents, my, my sister-in-law's parents, were going um, that Sunday morning, and so they went on, it was Christmas morning was a Sunday, and so they went on Christmas Sunday morning to this church, and there was no mention of Christmas at all, right? It was very disconcerted. Um, by that because they didn't view Christmas as a holiday worth mentioning in that that category at that church there. Um, So he was uh, really thrown off. I don't want you to be thrown off today. I know it's coming. Okay, I promise you you'll hear something about it. Just not today, okay? Just not today. Just look at the tree and you can feel Christmas in your heart while we talk about Esther, okay? But we are in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 9 today. If you have your Bible, you can open um, to Esther Chapter 9, I'll give you a brief summary of what's been going on in the book of Esther. Esther was just a Jewish girl living in the Persian kingdom um, when all of a sudden she was taken from her her home. She was elevated to the queen of Persia, married off to the most powerful man in the world, a king Ahasuerus. Um, And then her um, cousin, who was the one who raised her, um, was all of a sudden um, given a chance to be executed because he was hated by the second most powerful man, in the world, a guy named Haman, um, and through a series of God-ordained events, um, God flipped everything around, and, and her cousin Mordecai was elevated to that position of second-in-command, and so you have uh, the, the king in charge, you have Esther, a Jew, his queen, and you have Mordecai, a Jew, now second-in-command, and the man who was second-in-command has been executed on the same gallows that he had um, designed and built to execute Mordecai on. All this happened because uh, Haman, the, the villain in this story, had come up with a plan to kill all of the Jews. He was a, a tiny version of Adolf Hitler or maybe a, a larger version of Adolf Hitler. He believed he could kill all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. He actually had a law written, signed by the king, 
um, that the killing of the Jews would be acceptable on this specific day. There was going to be a day. Um, if you've seen the Purge movies, by the way, you shouldn't have seen the Purge movies. So if you've seen the Purge movies, shame on you. My wife and I, she's here somewhere, right? We wandered into a Purge movie, uh, Purge 2, 3, I don't know. We wandered into one of those. That was a surreal experience, okay? Um, but if you've seen the Purge movies, it's just like that. One day a year, you get to kill all the Jews you want. That was the, the plot line of the story of Esther. Um, that law could not be changed. Um, that when the king makes the laws in Persia, you can't change the laws in Persia. And so that law couldn't be changed. And so they came up with a kind of a counter law to go against it. And it said, well, well, yes, you can kill as many Jews as you want on this specific day, on this specific year. These Jews are now also allowed to kill you if you try. Right? And so instead of being lambs led to slaughter, um, they, were, they, were, they were equipped and empowered um, to, to, to kill and to strike back. And so now we get to that fateful day. Mordecai is now second in command. Haman is now dead. But that day on the calendar, which was a future date, has now come to be. And so we have to see what happens. Esther chapter 9 tells us about that day. It says this. It says, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain their mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all of the peoples. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the royal agents, they also helped the Jews... For the fear of Mordecai, the second in command, had fallen upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai, man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. I'm going to stop there. So the day is coming, uh, and we find out that the day that was supposed to be a day of victory for the enemies of the Jews became a day of defeat for the enemies of the Jew, and a day that was supposed to be a day of defeat for the Jewish people became a day of victory for the Jewish people. This is the plot line of the story of Esther. What looks to be a, a defeat, God turns into victory. What looks to be something that's going to be wicked, God turns into a blessing. God is a God of reversals. If you ever find yourself in a situation where the world is against you, but you're standing on the side of God, I just want to tell you something. Hang tight. You're going to be in for a reversal. It's how God works. The world may look to have won for a day. The world may seem to have had victory for a moment, but God will flip that over. Go back to the story of Joseph in, in the book of Genesis. Right? His brothers got tired of him. They threw him in the pit and then sold him into slavery. He seemed to be defeated, yet he rose to power in Potiphar's house, the man who bought him as a slave. Then all of a sudden he's wrongly accused of a crime and he's thrown into jail and he looks to be defeated. But in a moment, years later, after everything should have passed, God grabbed him from there and raised him to second in command of all of the ancient nation of Egypt. God reverses the fortunes. His brothers come to see him one day. And when they realize that they're talking to their who they thought was dead or in prison brother, 
They fall on their faces and they're scared because they, have, they, they, they sought his harm and God has blessed him. And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is a God who takes evil things and turns them into good. Some of you have experienced some very, very evil things. I know this because I've had people come into my office and share their stories. In fact, I doubt there's anyone in this room or anyone who's watching today on Facebook or YouTube. Hey guys, uh, I doubt there's anyone who's in any of those places who couldn't share their darkest moment where evil has been worked against them, sometimes by those closest to us, right? By our most dear loved ones, our closest friends turn against us in a moment, right? And in that moment, you feel defeated, but if you are standing on God's side, if you are walking the path that God has wants you to walk, I promise you, a reversal is coming. God reversed the plans of the wicked people in Esther's day because those plans fell contrary to God's plan. God had decreed to Abraham back in the book of Genesis that his people, the nation of Israel that would come from Abraham, would be blessed by him. God said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You will be a nation that will bless the entire world. And their destruction was not part of God's plan. And while other people had purpose to destroy them, God had other purposes for the nation of Israel. And so he saved them from that because the reversal came for them. Those who felt like they were going to win ended up defeated. It was a sad day in the nation of Persia. In fact, we'll read about how sad it was, but it was a great day for the nation of Israel, and it was a great victory for the God of the universe. Verse 6 says, In Susa, the citadel itself, where, where Esther and, and the king lived, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and they also killed, and there's a list of names here. I'm not going to read them because I'm not Persian, okay? And neither are you, so you don't care about these names. But there was 10 sons of Haman. All 10 sons of Haman's named here um, were killed. Um, and Haman is identified in verse 10 as the enemy of the Jews, but the Jews laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, verse 11, uh, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel... Um, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. Uh, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your further your request? And it will be filled. And Esther said, look, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to do according to this day's edict. And then let the 10 sons of Haman be hung on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the 10 sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed another 300 uh, men in Susa, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews, across the rest of the 126 provinces, also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies. And they killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th and 14th day, and they rested on the 15th day, um, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar for gladness and feasting as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. That's about a festival that we'll talk about next week in detail, the Festival of Purim. But what we have here is a reporting of what happened in this holy war. Um, this is a tough situation for our sensibilities, right? 
Um, because Esther, they have this day of reversal, and there's 75,000 people killed in the, in the general provinces of Persia. There's another 300 people killed in the specific town where Esther lives, in the citadel, the main fortress where the king was summering at uh, in Susa. And so you have this summer fortification, and, and you have what, 500 men killed on day one there. And there's 500 people killed, and the king comes in and says, well, what do you want now, Queen Esther? And for some reason, Esther is not satisfied with the amount of killing that has gone on. Right? And something in us, like general like people, we read that and we're like, it's a little, little bit too much, right? Like, you killed 500, and she's like, I need more, right? And so she goes out for another 300. We do not have an explanation for this. I have read about seven different commentaries about why would Esther go for day two of the killing. And there's theories, and there's strategies, and there's, well, maybe it's this, and maybe it's that. Maybe there was, since Haman was an influential person in that town, maybe he had more allies there, and they had to ferret him out and root him out and whatever. We don't know the answer for that, but we do know that it was not a good day to be a friend of Haman, the Agag guy. In fact, Haman is described over and over again throughout this passage as uh, the enemy of the Jews. And those who were uh, killed that day were the enemies of the Jews. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the conquest story. In fact, uh, I preached through books of the Bible. That's why we're finishing Esther, by the way. Um, but I preached through the book of Joshua, like, I don't know, four years ago maybe. And if you read the book of Joshua, you have the conquest narrative, right? They go into Jericho. They, they walk around the city. The children's story is nice, right? You walk around the city every day, and then on the seventh day, walk around the city seven times, blow the trumpets, walls come down, everything's happy at that point. It's not really the way the story ends, though, right? Because then they go into the town, and they kill everything that was breathing, right? Uh, anything that was breathing, animal or person of any age, gender, size of pet, whatever. They are all killed, burned, and then the gold and stuff they didn't keep, they gave to the treasury um, for the temple that would one day be built. But the reason that that happened, if you read the conquest narrative, that happens over and over and over and over again. There are things that God uh, declares um, devoted to destruction. That's, that's, a, that's the term that you'll read in the book of Joshua. Um, the, the Hebrew word is harem. Um, there are things, it's actually got a harder age, but I'm not going to spit on y'all right now. Um, but but there's a, there are things that God has decided because of the wickedness of them they are to be utterly and completely destroyed. That, that hurts our sensibilities. It hurts my sensibilities, right? That there are things devoted to destruction. Right? Things that are so wicked, they're devoted to destruction. But that is the case, uh, which leads to the, the Jewish concept of holy war. There is a time when God commands them to go to war. God gives the boundaries for what that war is going to be. And he says, this is what you're going to do um, to complete that holy war. You will go, you will kill those who are our enemies, and you will not take anything that belongs to them because those things, just like the people that you killed, are devoted for, for, for my uh, use only. They are not for you. And so when it says throughout this, I, I did this with my preacher group. John actually asked this question, right? Why does it say they took no hand on the plunder? They took no hand on, they didn't take any plunder. They didn't take any plunder, right? Even though the law that Mordecai issued said they could take plunder. Why didn't they take plunder? It's because the Jewish people in that day recognized what they were doing was not uh, an opportunistic ability to kill those who were their enemies. It wasn't a chance for them to get rid of their rivals. They were fulfilling a biblical command to destroy the enemies of God. Uh, and in this case, it would be the Amalekites, the sons of the Amalekites, the followers of Haman, the Agagite, and they were going and they were destroying them, and the stuff that those people owned was not theirs. 
And if they had taken that stuff, they knew they would live underneath some version of a curse. Read the story about Achan and Joshua if you want to know more about what that curse could look like. But they said, we're not touching that stuff because this stuff is devoted to God. Right? You may not appreciate the fact that there are times when God's wrath is declared and death is the consequence. But I'll tell you this, that is the, the genuine reality of our life today. God is not satisfied right, without without death at some point. This is why we have the cross of Jesus Christ. It's why our eyes look to Jesus Christ at this season, this Advent season. See, now it's Advent sermon. Right? At this Advent season where we're looking for the arrival of Jesus Christ, the reason Jesus matters is because he lived the sinless life and he died on the cross. Right? He went where God's wrath was going to be poured out across the nations, you and I included. When this was going to happen to us as enemies of God, right? While we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for us. He took the punishment for us. The wrath of God is satisfied on the person of Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate that this season, that the coming one is going to come and make a way for us where we don't have to live as enemies of God any longer. Because holy war, as waged in the Old Testament, is still being waged today for those who are enemies of God. Right? There are people in the world today who live as enemies of God. They die as enemies of God and they will face the wrath. They will face the wrath of God for eternity. I wish that on no one. One of the reasons I uh, want you to give to the Lottie Moon Mission Offering is there are people in other countries around the world who need to hear the message of hope that there is something better out there for them. That there is a God who loves them, that drew near to them, um, that lived among them, that came to be with them and then died for them so they could live eternally forgiven. Right? That story, the gospel message needs to go out to the nations because God's wrath is not satisfied outside of grace found in Jesus Christ. We have to point people to the cross of Jesus Christ because holy war was sent to protect God's people and God is still in the business of being just, and since he's just, we have to point people to him. Right? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you're living as an enemy of God. The Bible de declares everyone who does not live as a child of God, as an enemy of God. There are only two camps. Um, I was with someone, and they kept saying, there's two types of this, and they're like, well, really, there's like five, six, seven types. Right? There's like two types of marriages, that was said. Right? And then they're like, well, really, I think there are maybe like six or eight or ten types of marriages. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, they, you know, they get kind of confused about how many different types there are. But I'll tell you this. There are two types of people in the world. There are those who are children of God and those who are enemies of God. There is no middle ground. There's no I didn't know ignorant ground. We want there to be. I want there to be an ignorant ground in the middle. I didn't know. I tried my best. I, I tried to be nice to people. I listened to, to what the world said, and I, and I got good grades, and I did what my mama told me to do. And so like, I want to be in that middle area, but there's no middle ground. There is a firm dividing line, and you are on one side or the other. As Jesus says, I am the gate, right? You are on one side or the other of the gate of life, and the only thing that separates them is Jesus Christ. And some will enter through to life and, and being a child of God, and the rest remain as children of the devil, enemies of God. I wish that on none of you. But if that's you today, I want you to know God desires, like the, the ultimate desire of God is to, is to show you forgiveness through Jesus Christ. 
right? To show you forgiveness for Jesus. He doesn't want you to live under his wrath because God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus Christ. God isn't mad at you today. You've been forgiven if you allow the forgiveness to be applied to you. Right? If, if I owed a million dollars, I don't currently have a million dollars, just so you know. But if I owed a million dollars to a bank somewhere, let's say it's Wells Fargo because they have my house note. If I owe a million dollars to Wells Fargo, I can't pay uh, that, that thing. Wells Fargo would be within their rights to take me to court, to repossess my stuff, foreclose me, whatever they need to do to try to get whatever money's worth out of me that they can. Right? Because I entered into an agreement and I have a debt that I can't pay. But if one of you wealthy people out here today, all of y'all have millions of dollars in your bank accounts, if one of you offered to pay that debt for me, right, the bank would be satisfied. You could go to your local Wells Fargo branch, I guess in Hutto, I don't know where one closer is, um, but you can go to your local Wells Fargo branch, you could uh, write a check for a million dollars, says this goes to Matt Higginbotham's account. Right, by the way, that probably doesn't happen very often, so Wells Fargo would probably pick up the phone and call me. Hey, Matt, I got someone trying to give a million dollars to cover your debt. What's that all about? At that moment, I have a choice to make. I can say, yes, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I'll accept that. Or I can be like a regular American, right? Like, I entered into that debt. No one needs to pay my debt. It's my debt. It's my problem. I don't want that person's help. I don't want their help. I'll take care of this on my own. And so I continue to pay my nickels and pennies. Uh, every month by month to try to service that debt. It only gets larger, by the way, because interest is a bear in that, that side of the thing. And so I never am able to get the debt serviced out, and I live a perpetual debtor because I refused the gift that someone was willing to give me. Jesus Christ has given that gift. The gift is already there. It has been applied with your name attached to it. It is designed to forgive you of your offenses against God. It has your name addressed on it, right? It's, it's sometimes we, we think of it as like this like big gift that covers like everybody, but it's a personal gift that covers individuals. It's just a lot of those. And your name is, is God. Whatever your debt to God has been paid. It's paid in full, but you can choose not to accept that. Right? You can. God, God gives you that choice. It's, it's a wonderful thing about God that he's not going to force you to do anything you don't want to do. If you don't want to be forgiven, you don't have to be forgiven. If you don't want to cry out to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, you don't have to be forgiven. You can live under the weight of your sin. But God's desire is that none should perish, but all should come to eternal life. God's desire is that you would accept that gift. So if you want to accept that gift today, it's real, real, real simple. You need to recognize that you're a sinner. You need to come to the concept that you have done things to offend a holy and righteous God. And once you come to that knowledge... You, can, you need to recognize that you can't fix it on your own. In fact, the more good things you do just means you've lived longer, and the longer you live, the more garbage you're going to do. Right? You just can't help yourself. Some of you went back for thirds at Thanksgiving, gluttony, boom, right there, gotcha, immediately. Right? You couldn't get away from it. You thought you could get away from it, but that ninth roll was calling out your name, and you just had to have it. Right? Some of you just had a rough Thursday. Right? Some of you have been disobedient to your parents. Some of, you, some of you are older, and you are still disobedient to your parents. Shame on you, older saints in this room today. Right? Some of you have been disrespectful. Some of you have uttered words that are not appropriate for you to utter. Some of you have used God's name in vain. Some of you have stolen, lied, cheated, committed infidelity, had sex outside of marriage, looked at pornography. Right? The list is long, and the longer you live, the more stuff you can put on your tab. And then you want to say, yeah, but. 
Yeah, but I walked an old lady across the street, right? I do this, by the way. I don't walk old ladies across the street because most don't need help across the street. But when I'm at Walmart, old lady, 50-pound bag of dog food, I'm like, I got this, right? And I get the dog food, I throw it in the truck, I walk away like I'm a hero. I strut away, by the way. It's a pretty, like, right? I feel pretty good about myself. But here's the deal, right? While you feel good about yourself when you do good things, it doesn't fix the fact that, that, that you're really, I, my small group got on to me last week said I was a little hard on y'all, calling you wicked, wicked sinners. Fun fact, I wasn't hard enough. Y'all are terrible. <laughs> I mean, just awful. There's no exceptions. Not me. They, they got mad at me because I didn't put me in there. Guys, the worst. You guys are saints compared to me. Right. The longer I live, the worse I get. I can't get better, but Jesus Christ was goodness himself. And so whatever debts that I accrue, God has already paid through the cross of Jesus Christ. So I have to admit that I'm a sinner, recognize my sin, and then I have to call out to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. For all that I've done and all that I ever will do. And at that moment, I make Jesus the Lord of my life. I try to live underneath his guidance. I use the Bible as a guide to help guide me. And you know what, guys? Every day, I fall short to some degree or another of what God has called me to do. I wish it wasn't the case. I wish I was better. I'm trying to get better. But Jesus is good. And he's good enough to take care of Matt Higginbotham. And if he can take care of my problems, I promise he can take care of yours. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you're going through right now, your forgiveness is safe and secure if you would just call out to Jesus Christ for salvation. God is trying to forgive people. What you need to know, though, is that that end is coming for all of us. We don't know when it's going to be. This week, right, the last seven days, our, our, our sister town up there has had a rough go with young people dying. But, I mean, you, you've read about it. Some of you are like, what? But, I mean, heartbreaking. 20-year-olds um, dying, tragic accidents, right? It, it, you don't know. You don't know. We're not guaranteed another day. We're not guaranteed another week. We're not guaranteed another breath. And some of us feel like, well, when that day comes, there will be a day. Then I'll do it. Then I'll do it. Then I'll do it. But there, there may come an accounting for you now. And guys, it breaks my heart. When I was reading those stories this week, man, my heart broke, right, for, for, for that town, for those parents, for that community. It's Cameron, by the way, and it takes a lot for my heart to break for Cameron, Texas. It really does. Right, but when you read about tragedy, right, your heart just naturally falls and, and drops in you because, because life becomes real. It's not, this thing isn't eternal, but there is eternal life. God promises that there will be eternal life. And if we've learned anything from the book of Esther, we know that what God promises to do will come to fruition because God's promises are certain. He promises that one day there will be death and a judgment. He promises that there will be forgiveness in Jesus Christ. These promises are absolute certainties in your life. Are you ready for those promises today? Are you ready for, for, for the promise that is certain that God will... Um, will come and prepare a place for those who know him. Or is that promise true to you? Have you owned that, that promise in John chapter 14? Are you ready um, for, the, for the death and the judgment as we see in the book of 1 Corinthians? Are you ready for that? Because those promises, every promise God ever makes, is certain. For good or for ill. But luckily God is a God who loves us, cares for us, provides for us, and made a way for us to experience joy unspeakable here Enjoy eternal with him in glory. The question is, are you ready today? Because God's promises are certain. 
God promised to preserve the nation of Israel. Haman uh, purposed to destroy the nation of Israel. Guess what? Haman's promises and God's promises, God wins again. God is going to win. His promises will come true. Are you ready for them? Some of us aren't. I know some of us aren't ready uh, for the arrival of Jesus Christ. As we think about Advent, which leads us to the second coming of Christ, we're to come back now, we would be very unhappy. Maybe we would be lost to, in our sin, or maybe we would just be found doing things that are worthless. Are you ready today? Because the promise is that he's coming again. That's the promise. He's coming again. He's going to return. He's going to be back. Are you ready for him to come back? If he came back yesterday, how would you have been doing? How would it have looked? How would you, would you have been shamed? Well, that's what I think sometimes. I would just be ashamed. That in my last 24 hours on life that I lived for me. I lived for me, for, for Matt, instead of for him. The one who I, I, I've told is, is my all. Are you ready today? Because what God has promised is certain to come true. God promised a protection for the Jews. He protected them. God promises Jesus' return. It is imminent. Some people look to the signs. They look to the world. They look at everything around and say, man, you can see that, that, that Jesus is coming soon. Look, I'm not an expert in reading the signs of the, the, the time, but I will say this. There is nothing preventing the return of Jesus Christ. He could come now. Are you ready for that? If you're not ready for that, we're going to have an invitation. You can come. I will talk to you about how you can know for sure that Jesus Christ has forgiven you for your sins and that you might be a child of God. You may enter through the gate of life, which is Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've been living a life unworthy of a follower of Christ, you know Jesus Christ, you've lived for Jesus Christ, but something has happened over the last weeks, months, years of your life, and your love for Christ has grown cold. Your zeal for the things of God has become washed out. Your desire for the things of the world has elevated. Your desire for yourself has elevated. And your desire for God has dissipated. You can pray and say, God, revive my heart again. That doesn't mean you're lost. You're not going to hell. It just means you've been living like a pagan. It's time to stop. God is calling you today to walk back towards him. Whatever you need to do, we'll have an invitation. The invitation is for you to get your life set up right with God. It won't be long, we won't belabor it, um, but it's here for you today.